So, Evan Epstein, how do you like your takes? You know, I like my takes appropriate, yet tasteful. Like a classy handwritten thank you note. I, uh, I want to appreciate my takes. Appreciate your takes. I want them to mean something like, um, like what Prince lyrics mean to me. Appreciated takes was a, one of the runner ups for the <laughs> new brand of the podcast here. Uh, thank you for joining us on appropriate takes. Glad you are here with us. Appreciate appreciative takes uh, lost out by two votes. Two, two, zero, two out of two out of 10 total voters. Um, on that little poll that we did to change the name. Yep. We ran a Google uh, survey campaign. Feedback was not great, but if you're wondering why we referenced the late, great, I don't even want to say artist because I think he transcends artistry. Um, the man formerly known as Prince, it's the four year anniversary of his death today. So we've been reminiscing and listening to some golden tracks of his from back in the day. And, uh, one of our personal favorites, I know uh, I'm speaking for both of us, but uh, it's uh, it never gets old. It's always good. It's true. Favorite uh, favorite Prince song. You could you could call us big Prince guys over here at uh, Appropriate Takes Podcast for sure. Prince A lot song. of stuff to talk about, but we wanted to talk about this because it's important. Four years ago, Sweet Angel was taken off this earth. However. There's other things we have to touch on. We have a cool show for you guys today. We have a really cool guest. uh, A lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, So I guess probably we just get right into it. Uh, We like to do our little rundown before we get into our interviews. And first up on the list, bad day for oil. Bad Bad, week for oil. Yeah, Bad several weeks for oil. Strange Uh, times. Negative pricing, uh, which means essentially – uh, that there's so there's only so much oil we can store, and people they produce so much oil, and because of the lack of demand for everyone staying home, um, you have to pay people to take oil off you at this point, uh, which is what the negative price means. Some people didn't understand what that was. Um, probably really hitting home in Oklahoma, huh? Not as much as it is in Texas, probably where you're at, but I think that I'm not West the most. Texas, yeah, for I'm sure. not the most well versed in the oil and gas space. I know that there was some some type of um, huge drilling influx in the middle Middle East that drove up the surplus, which drove down the price. But yeah, I think it's the uh, it's the first time it's ever went negative on futures. Um, it's definitely not good for Oklahoma, Texas. Um, Anywhere that's heavily reliant on oil. I mean, I'm sure everyone's recognized that the last couple of months gas prices have been really low. I know they've been under a dollar here in Oklahoma City a couple couple times already. Um, it's really not good though. I'd much rather pay, you know, around two bucks a gallon, a little over two bucks a gallon, and have a you know, have the state economy, you know, be healthier. And um, you know, I think that's a lot of people would, would agree with me that here, you know, in states where Oil and gas is such a big piece of the the state economy. I think that's what helped me realize that I was an adult uh, when I when living in Oklahoma, and I mean, obviously, West Texas is the same. Uh, you know, Western Col- or Eastern Colorado, uh, the, the Dakotas, wherever there's a lot of oil drilling, obviously heavily reliant on that uh, for their local economies. But 
you know, living in Oklahoma when, when oil went down, was it uh, three years ago, maybe? Um, and the prices dropped in that high school version of myself was like, oh, and I filled my car up for like 20 bucks. Let's go. But in reality, it's, it, it doesn't really work like that. You start really seeing the effects, uh, especially in our day jobs of, of, of that hurt get put on the economy. And, and when you look at certain states and certain areas of states that are so reliant on that business, it's like, you know, I'd pay two ninety nine to make sure everything's going well, even up to three fifty for sure to make sure that that version of the economy is going well. And it's, it's really interesting. I've been reading more about it because obviously I'm, I'm not an oil and gas guy by any means, but I like to know things that I, I don't currently know. Um, I do know, however, I think it's going to be interesting to see how many, uh, F two fifty King ranches get traded in for uh, Kia Souls, flipped ten grand. Happens every time, um, and and I don't say that as a joke. It's it's actually kind of a sad thing. Um, yet another victim of this pandemic. Yeah, I took a look today. I haven't seen it. it hasn't quite. They haven't quite hit yet. Um, I definitely think it's coming. You know, as the oil and gas market continues to lay off contractors and people that are working in the field, you know, those are typically the people that feel it first. Um, yeah, the, the market will start to flood and people will try to trade into things that um, are less, less expensive. Um, but you could also argue that people will, during these times, they buy um, bigger, less efficient vehicles because fuel costs are lower. Now that's not very logical, but it happens that way as well. But uh, yeah, hoping it doesn't stay this way for long and hoping we can get that price per barrel back up. Um, but it's one of those deals that I think just most of your average everyday person doesn't really understand how the oil market works, myself included. Um, so it's, it's something that's like, it's unfortunate, but I don't even know what we would do to fix it. Exactly. It's not the only victim of this pandemic. Uh, I, I assume there's many football fans that are, that are listening to this podcast. Uh, if, if, the last statistics held true. Uh, this this month and this pandemic claimed another victim, the XFL, which is, is kind of a point of contention at Appropriate Takes Podcast because Bronson and I are uh, in differing boats on how we think about this. But yes, the XFL uh, went bankrupt this month. Uh, I thought it was going to happen regardless, and Bronson disagrees. Tell me, tell me why you don't think you thought it was going to succeed, and maybe talk about what what happened around the whole that collapse. So, I think that they were going to make it through this year to another season. Um, in my own head, I don't necessarily think that a developmental or spring football league is going to be truly successful until the NFL is actually a part of it and backing it. And it's treated more like a true developmental league, like the NBA has with the G league. That being said, I think they had their ducks in a row this time. It seemed like they had the funding in place. It seemed like they had decent crowds when the games were on TV, they had the TV contracts in place. Um, It sounded like they were really approaching it from the perspective of longevity versus just some marketing fling or, or fad. Um, You know, he made it very clear that he was seeking a very large television deal. They were paying players a decent amount compared to other leagues in the past or compared to like arena football. Um, They had venues that were professional venues. Shout out to arena football. Shout out to all the arena football vets. I never, I never got, did that thankfully, but um, I've heard the horror stories. It was a blast. (laughs) 
<laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think you know, I think they were they had some momentum going there. I think that um, you know there is kind of that desire to see football in the spring, and I think that's why you see people here watch CFL games sometimes. But uh, yeah, I think this obviously this virus situation that basically made them cut the season in half. I think they played four or five games when it was all said and done on a 10 game season. Um, and then the playoffs on top of that. So uh, I think they would have had a shot. I really do. I think that, uh, you know, I thought it was entertaining. I like the on-field aspect of having microphones live. So every time a kicker missed a kick, that camera's right in their face. I know as linemen, we love that. Uh, keeping the kickers accountable. Um, something that you don't typically see on a college game or an NFL game, you know, something goes wrong and, you know, they might talk to the coach when they're going in for halftime and they give some BS answer, but they, they got some really, um, you know, raw reactions from players on what was going on in the field. I think people really enjoyed it. Yeah. The, the few plays that are the, you know, the few snaps that I watched, I, I thought it was interesting, but it just seemed like overwhelmingly to me that it was the same attempt at making a unaffiliated developmental league that was inevitably bound to fail. Um, I will, however, say that I, I think the whole season would have went through for sure. Maybe two, three more seasons after that. Uh, obviously, no one expected this pandemic, which, I mean, instantly killed killed their league. But, I mean, I could have seen it going a little bit. But to me, still, overwhelmingly, it felt like the, the same old song and dance. I do love, however, how the WWE said that they had no part of it or were kind of shady about their involvement. And then as soon as their bankruptcy filings came out, uh, they were all over it. They totally had an ownership stake in, in that company. And uh, it was another uh, case of the old Urban Myers where you're not going to uh, – definitely not going to go anywhere else. And then you you do exactly what you say you didn't. Well, you know, those tax benefits come down the pipe. you got to – take advantage of them. But yeah, I, I, I think it's like I said before, until the NFL is actually a part of it and they view it as a farm system, I don't see it ever being necessarily truly sustained, you know, a sustained thing where you can use those, you can basically use those same fan bases in the same towns and they'll, they can support, basically they can support, support their team year round. I think that's kind of the way it has to be. Um, and that's the way the NBA does it, and they seem to have success. Now, they're not always in the exact same town, but... Um, Do you think the NFL needs a developmental league because they need to actually help develop talent or because they just need a bigger pool to pull people from? Uh, we know, obviously, if you listen to our last episode, it's, it's a pretty cutthroat industry. People are in and out all the time. Do you think that's because of developmental issues or do you think it's because of just how the <clears> business is? No, I think they have a developmental league and it's called the NCAA. Um they literally exactly. have a fresh batch of kids every year that they can pick from. There's free agents that fall off every year that they can pick from. There's guys that get cut every year that they can pick from. Um, the NCAA is the NFL's farm system, and they don't have to pay a dime for it. Um, no. So then how in any good conscience could another league um, exist? I mean, why do they need to have a developmental league? I mean, so what is the real lure for a, another league that has – cool yeah. rules as far as like name yourself, whatever. And let's look at the kicker, hate himself. I don't uh, think they need, I don't think they need one, but I think that's the only way that it becomes a sustainable type of league. For example, it's different from the NBA because some of these kids are coming out as an 18 year old or a 19 year old. They might need some physical development or they, they could even, I think believe they changed it where you can actually go straight from high school to the G league, play a, le- a year in the G league and then go to the, the, uh, 
the pros. You can also go play a year internationally and then go play in the NBA. So in the football, obviously, you have to play three years. Most guys are going to play four. So they're they're typically, by the time they get out of college, they're going to be pretty well physically developed. And if they're not, then they can just pick somebody else. Um, if you're not ready to play, the NFL is typically not a league that spends a lot of time developing raw talent unless you're just an absolute freak. Um, and those guys are few and far between, but, um, yeah, I don't, and you'd almost argue that those guys don't need that much development as far as their talent. I mean, those guys that are kind of those transcendental players that could come in and make a difference on day one, then it's just kind of taking care of them, make sure they're, they're healthy. Yeah. They can find a spot for you, but you know, it's just a matter of nailing them to one position. You don't see, you don't typically see guys playing multiple positions in the NFL unless they're just, you know, insanely athletic, like a Deion Sanders type guy. I wish we could have had Lane on uh, when when this happened. It would have been interesting to hear his take on this. Um, so like we said, it's a bad day for oil, bad month for the XFL. Uh, and it, It's been a bad year for people that have social media. It's been a bad if year you, for pretty much everyone in general. <laughs> if you have social media, you've, uh, you've seen a noted uptick in activity, uh, so to speak. Uh, there's been Instagram challenges of people doing push-ups and all kinds of stuff. The one thing I have a question about, and Bronson, I'm, I'm counting on you to help me solve this. I've seen a lot of these things called TikToks, right? And I kind of think I have an idea of what it is, but <laughs> I wish I could show everyone our podcast notes. Uh, we have a note here that says, what the fuck even is TikTok? So that's my question I pose to you, Mr. Irwin. Please explain TikTok to me. Why do people get on it? Why are people poorly dancing on their phone? And why does no one have any shame anymore? So TikTok is essentially a form of social media that is, I would most closely compare it to Vine, which is something people might remember that disappeared a few years ago where you had like six second clips that you could post. It's a total um, ripoff of Vine, right? Or is it more musically based? Sort of, because the big thing with TikTok is like, you it's like a mixture of Vine and um, what was that thing that came out a few years called like Dub Smash, where you could like dub the audio over your video and you like lip synced like scenes from movies or songs or whatever. Um, it's kind of a mixture of that, but it definitely has a younger total average audience. Um, so I'm, I, uh, I follow like, Gary Vaynerchuk and some of those entrepreneur guys. And they were kind of hot on it. Like when it first came out. So I checked it out. It's actually been out for like four or five years. Let's see, September, 2016. Um, so I checked it out and I was like, you know, is this something that's even worth it's, it's certainly not mine or your style. It's very, um, animated. It's very video driven, video based, um, narcissistic, very narcissistic, more so than arguably more so than Instagram in a different way, but it's goofier. Um, there, you don't ever really see much on TikTok that's like serious content. It's just more kind of goofy, mindless stuff like Vine was. Um, but obviously during these particular times in the last, I don't know, six weeks, people have had a lot more free time to check out and try out things that maybe they wouldn't normally do. And I think TikTok has fallen right in that category. They've probably hit so many demographics that they never thought that they would get to. I mean, I'm seeing like pictures of families doing TikToks and dads and boomers dancing all over the place uh, on these things. And and I am starting to feel old 
because this is the first like social media thing, like big new social media. You know, when Vine, you mentioned Vine, when Vine came out, I liked Vine. I thought I was all about Vine when it came out. Uh, that was like in 2012, 13. Um, and now at the age of, I'm almost 30, this TikTok thing, I see it on every Instagram. It's like Instagram is TikTok at this point. And I haven't, I just can't, I just don't understand it. I like I Vine. want to. I would love for someone to reach out and email us about what it is and why I need to get on it. I just don't get it. I just don't understand what it's for. Yeah. I've only seen a couple of videos that I thought were funny. I actually saw one of those family type deals. Like you're talking about, it's like a dad and his sons doing these dances. And then I actually saw them on a commercial the other day. They had done like a, the same format for like a twisted tea, hard iced tea beverage commercial. I thought it was funny. So people are monetizing it like they do it. Like they find a way to do with everything. But what I liked about vine was, the playing field was equal. Everyone had the access to the exact same thing. All you had was six seconds. So you had to be creative and you had to be quick and succinct, which is kind of our style. Let's get to the point. Let's, let's, let's figure out how we do this. If you couldn't do it in six seconds, if you dragged it out, it was terrible. So you had to find a way to do it in a very condensed form. And it was easy to, it was easy to digest. But yeah, some of the TikToks, I mean, they're, they're long. They're like, like two minute videos. It's too much. It's too much. I'm not interested. I'm, I'm glad that it's gone now, but if there was ever a way to get those old Vine like accounts and videos, I will have you know that uh, I did quite a few Vine videos because I thought that I had funny videos on Vine at the time. I tried to be a Vine a Vine influencer, and, yeah. uh, we, and it didn't uh, work out. Uh, a lot, a lot didn't of those work people, out. a lot of those people that blew up on Vine, they weren't necessarily able to translate that into like a YouTube career. So I make I can make six second videos doesn't mean I can make a four minute YouTube video. So it's kind of interesting to see it's like these people fit in these different social media niches that you know they don't necessarily translate to another one. Um, so just gotta hope that the the league you're playing in doesn't go under. I guess like the XFL, the Vine is the XFL of social media. Oh God, I would uh, Twitter is the XFL of social media. Uh- no, because it still exists. Twitter is the, this N- is a, uh, Twitter's this the is a, NHL of social media. This is a happy reminder to uh, any children listening to this podcast. Uh, being a social media influencer is not a career path. My uh, my 10-year-old However, sister still thinks that YouTuber is an option. So, Is that what she, Yeah. I mean, that that's an interesting thing that I'm seeing now uh, is, is that children that I've – met talk to like Katie's nephews or whatever. Like they want to be in a, a you like wanting to be a YouTuber is a thing now. That was you know? huge. When we were kids, it was, I want to be a professional athlete or an astronaut or a lawyer or whatever, like normal stuff sort of, I guess. And now it's like, I want to be a YouTuber. I want to have a million followers on Instagram. I don't, I mean, I get it because you can make a lot of money and like who wouldn't want to make $30 million a year playing video games. But that's like saying you want to be a famous actor or actress and then you get stuck, you know, waiting tables in LA for 20 fucking years. So, yeah, I think it's a stay in school. I mean, every, every day it's just gets to be a more saturated thing. And the people that are at the top are going to stay up there for the most part. I mean, the same guys that are big on YouTube have been big on YouTube for years at this point. So um, the last time I was out in LA, uh, we met for dinner, a couple of our friends from Oklahoma that moved out there and, 
uh, there was a person having dinner with us and, and that's how he, he introduced himself as a, he's a YouTuber. That's what he does. And of course I checked him and he was a YouTuber with like 20,000 subscribers or whatever, 60, I don't remember, but I mean, that, hi, I'm a YouTuber. <laughs> so he had almost as many subscribers as we do. That's good. Uh, but yeah, I read an article about this because I, I find these little like little sub economy things so interesting. There's actually like media groups that put together these like living arrangements in LA. So they'll, they'll put them in like a, like an eight bedroom house and in, in the Hills in Hollywood. And they'll put like 20 aspiring social media influencers and YouTubers in these houses and basically they get to live there for free as long as they're producing content. And then they sign with these media groups for endorsements and, and representation. So it's, it's just crazy to think that, you know, something that started that what off, every nefarious industry does is, Oh, here, produce stuff for us in this uh, yeah, I mean, shared house. Isn't that how Facebook started? Jesus. Well, I think the reality is that everything starts out organic and, you know, YouTube started as a way you can post videos to share. And then I think, you know, when something starts to pick up steam, corporations and, and, you know, media companies get involved. So you rarely see something nowadays go viral, so to speak, that doesn't have the backing of some larger power behind it. I mean, every once in a while, you know, something will happen, but um, it's just turning into a corporate structure, just like everything else does. So um, I get it. I guess that's why we like Twitter, because it seems a little more individualized i guess corporations don't typically do well on twitter if you follow any companies on twitter they're always getting roasted for something twitter truly is the wild west of social media and that's kind of why if you look at any social media that bronson and i have it's we're, we're relatively active on twitter i post a few things on instagram and it's private um twitter's the wild west and it's you know you'll get called out on twitter if you say something that's i mean Every football season, without a doubt, I will post something on t- about a game and it'll turn into a 48-hour Twitter fight every year. Um, but that's what I love about it, in all honesty. It's anyone, it, it, like you mentioned before, it truly is the equalizer. No, one, I mean, everyone's accessible and that's the coolest thing about it. Um, when it was kind of in jeopardy, whether it was going to be around or not, I was very sad. But yeah, yeah. social media during this pandemic has quite frankly made me hate humanity slightly more, even more than I did before. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, it's kind of interesting when you can look at culture and how it changes right before your eyes. This is one of those, one of those times. Anyways, moving on, we have a, a very interesting guest, uh, different than our very different, I would say than our former guests. Um, He's a former wrestler from Georgia, kind of a jack-of-all-trades journeyman, if you will. Uh, he's been heavily involved in the car business for years in, in Texas and, and uh, out east. Uh, he's, he's also a former special operations Marine. He was a Marine Raider, uh, for those of you who know that. If you don't know, it's kind of like the Marines version of the Navy SEALs. Uh, they were uh, a thing in World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they were recently recreated in, I think, early in the early 2000s, 2003, four, something like that. Uh, he was one of the first uh, guys on those teams. 
And apart from his uh, success in business, uh, in, in the auto business, he's also been heavily involved in helping uh, homeless veterans in the DFW area. Super interesting guy. Uh, Bronson and I have both known him for, for a couple of years now. Uh, Chief Bell is, is what we're going to be referring to him as. He asked that we didn't give his whole name for whatever fucking reason. I think it's kind of cool. Um, we have him on the podcast and, uh, it's, it's a really cool interview. I think you guys will think it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, and and kind of the first part of us kind of just kind of a little taste of going into, uh, different kind of groups of people that we want to, that we have interviews for in this season of our podcast. Um, I don't know, Bronson, what do you think? I think it's exciting. I think it's, uh, it's different, but it's similar. I know a guy that wrestled at a high level at the University of Georgia, a guy that's from uh, Southern Georgia, I believe, uh, which is I've got family roots there as well. And, uh, you know, obviously moved on from that to to be in uh, a really cool group uh, within the military and and now is, has um, created a pretty good uh, professional career for himself on top of that. So I think it's going to be uh, really interesting, a little different than, uh, than a lot of things we've done in the past, but uh, I think it'll be different in a good way. And once again, keep in mind, uh, we'll post these, our interviews every other Monday. Um, and we'll plug all of our social media stuff at the end. But, you know, once again, we really appreciate your feedback. Let us know, you know, what kinds of people you want to hear from. There's not a lot of people that are out of, uh, not that I'm trying to make us out to be awesome podcasters, but there's not a lot of people that are out of our reach. We can, we know a lot of people and we can talk to a lot of people and we think it's interesting We'd love to know if you guys also think it's interesting. When we ask you to send questions, send questions because we're going to ask people that are interesting your questions. I guarantee you. Um, so we hope you guys like this interview. Uh, we think it's pretty cool. And uh, we'll see you at the end. All right. We've got Chief Bell on the line with us. How are you doing today? Doing good, fellas. Doing good. How about y'all? Doing well, doing well. Just uh, surviving, I guess, is the name of the game right now. How's the uh, quarantine situation treating you so far? Uh, pretty docile, you know. Um, it's me and the dogs here at the house, kids every other week, so not too bad. Um, just enough not to lose my sanity. But other than that, I'm ready for this to be over, man. I'm sure as most people are. I definitely agree with you on that one. But uh, let's jump right into it. So you, you – uh, Grew up in Georgia, obviously, southern Georgia, I believe, and um, ended up going to UGA and, and wrestling there. Tell us a little bit about kind of your uh, your college experience and in, uh, in athletics and, and kind of how that, that process was for you. Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't think my experience was unique in any way. Um, you know, my sport of choice, I guess, was – different than both of yours, but I'm sure my experiences were very similar. Uh, you know, when you do athletics in college, it's essentially a full-time job and a lifestyle, uh, tons and tons of work, tons of time required, and it takes a certain dedication. So I think that carries over into life for most people. Um, but all in all, it was very enjoyable. Uh, like I said, tons of hard work, but uh, very much worth it. So, Very good. Yeah, I think that we can definitely attest to that being 
student athletes is a, is a different ball game than just going to school and, and going to class and, and partying the rest of the time. You definitely have to be held to a higher standard of accountability to, to manage your time and, and get everything done. And, and I'm sure that, like you said, that's transitioned and helped you a lot in your career after athletics. So um, once you graduated from the University of Georgia, uh, kind of tell us about the, uh, the next steps for you professionally. Well, uh, started off, finished up, uh, you know, double majored my undergrads, criminal justice and international affairs. And the idea was to go to law school. So at that point, took my LSATs, did pretty well, got accepted just about everywhere I applied. So I decided to stay there at Georgia. It was easy. I was already there. You know, my friends, everything was there. So that's kind of where I planned on going. And then coming off of scholarship comes the question of how do we pay for, you know, law school? Law school is very expensive. So yes, it is. looking at other options and my dad actually retired Navy. And so I was sitting on the couch one day, randomly a Marine Corps recruiter called me and offered to buy me a free lunch and it cost me five years of my life. So, uh you know, that's kind of how that went down. It was uh, a very different path, one that I never, I guess, intended on taking. But I'm very much glad I did. It was very rewarding, very costly in some ways, but um, definitely the option that I'm glad I took. So for, for being... A, a leader of salespeople in your professional life, uh, you were easily sold on that one. Just a quick lunch and then five years gone, huh? Well, yeah, man, they got me. They, they definitely did. <laughs> so it, no, they, so the idea was that based on my grades and, you know, my athletic background, they wanted me to go in and be a Marine Corps officer. So the idea was they were going to pay me full officer pay, while I did three years of law school, putting on rank, active duty, all that. So it was kind of a no brainer. They were going to pay a hundred percent of law school and pay me to go to law school. I mean, guys, that's kind of, I, I don't know if I actually got sold on it or not. I think the selling on my, you know, the part where I got sold came later, but that, you know, that's a story I'm sure we'll get to, but it was, a. Uh, Again, it was very rewarding. I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I actually never became an attorney. One of my really good friends is an attorney and I look at his job day to day and I'm like, damn, glad I didn't go down that road. Everything happens for a reason, right? Oh. And, and this is, I think, one of the coolest parts about your story um, and your path into the Marines. Uh, but that's not even the most interesting part. It's kind of your path further into the Marines. Tell us about you know, what brought you, how you got into special operations and why that's kind of, I don't think people really understand why the group of special operations that you were in, why that's special around the time that it was um, recreated, I guess you can say. Uh, how did you go? Because you went in, you were, uh, you know, a Marine and then got into that special operation. Tell us that story about how you got into special operations. And then uh, we could get into how you how you were a chief, uh, which is a great story, by the way. I want to talk about that. But how, how did your you got sold on the Marine Corps? How did that lead into the special operations for the Marine Raiders? So, uh, well, I went and I did 
officer candidate school, finished pretty well, um, you know, finished in the top couple in my class there, went on to PLS between leader school. And while I was in officer candidate school, 9-11 happened. So that very much changed everything instantly. So we're sitting there on a Tuesday morning. I was in class and all of this, you know, goes down. And I'm sure every one of us can remember exactly where we were and what we were doing. It's, I mean, it's absolutely ingrained into us. So at that point, you know, some things go on and there's talk of obvious, you know, we have to strike this, that, the other. And so as a very young Marine, you know, freshly minted, I'm scared shitless. Don't really know what's going on. All I know is I'm trying to get a law degree for free. And all of a sudden we're talking about fighting and retaliating and buildings blowing up. And it it was a very strange time. So, you know, things kind of normalize to a certain extent, Uh, finish up OCS, you know, become a commission officer, go to platoon leader school and was, I don't know, I think I was a couple of weeks out from finishing PLS. And it was very much like going to the principal's office. So I'm sitting in class and there's a knock on the door and they ask to see me outside. And I'm like, well, it's just like high school. What did I do? How much trouble am I in? And what do I need to do to get out of it? Well, it's not exactly what happened. So I go out in the hallway and there's a two-star general there. And first thought in my mind was, oh shit, I'm in a lot of trouble. So we begin to talk and he basically tells me, I got voluntold that I've been selected to try out for a new unit. Would I like to try out? So I thought about it for a second. Yeah, as I'm sure we all would. And I wanted a little more information. You know, so I asked this. Well, I, yeah, I'd like a little more info as what's going on. And he looked me square in the eye and he goes, son, you've been selected to try out for a new unit. Would you like to try out? So I did the only thing that I think any Marine would do. And I said, hell yeah. But you had no idea, like, hey, come to our special unit. You had had no idea what it was. Nothing. There was no. Dude, this was like a minute and a half long conversation with a guy I'd never met before. That's and But you had to have an idea, though, right? I mean, like you said, I mean, I can't even imagine being, uh, you know, a, a young officer in the military during that time. I, I remember when that happened, I used there was an article, I think, in Time magazine. It was like the class of 2001, and it was the group of West Point cadets that graduated um, right after September 11th. And they made, a, you know, a whole thing about it. So I can't imagine being in at that time, kind of young, green, um, what that must have felt like in and of itself, much less, hey, join this special unit. We're not going to tell anything, tell you anything about it. Well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, if you decide to go try out for the SEALs and decide to go through BUDS and everything, 
they don't really have to disclose to you what you're doing. You kind of know, right? Right. So in the back of my mind, when, you know, we're having this very short, poignant conversation, like I've got an idea already as to what this will entail. Uh, You know, I, I pretty much know, but I don't, it's not confirmed. Right. So yeah, that's kind of where it was. I mean, the first day you showed up to play football, they didn't sit down with you and explain to you every single thing about it, but you had a pretty damn good idea about what you were getting into. Oh, they didn't explain shit. And that, I didn't have an idea what I was getting into though. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, no idea. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. But that's, but no, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting. So at the time I was married, um, it was up in, I think it was, what is that, Virginia, Quantico? And uh, next thing you know, I'm like, sure, let's do this. He's like, great, grab your bag. Okay. So I go in back into the classroom, grab my bag, and I walk out. And we start walking out of the building. We get into his car and head to the flight line. Like, so this happened right there. Oh, hey, it was like selected for this thing. You want in. Grab your grab your shit right now, like you're on the plane. Let's go. Oh, 30 minutes later, we were wheels up headed to Pendleton. Simple oh, as great. that. Across the country. Because you were in you said you were in uh Virginia. Yeah. Virginia. Yeah. That's crazy. So, What'd you tell your wife? Uh well, I got to call her from the plane and explain to her that I wasn't gonna be home. That conversation went over really well because she had apparently you know, taking some nice steaks or whatever it was she had taken out for dinner that night and was pretty upset with me, which she ended up being pretty upset with me most of the time. And she still is. So yeah, kind of, kind of is what it is. So I think, so, I think a lot, a lot of people are familiar with some of the things that have been put out there as far as like the Navy SEAL training shows that are on TV. How did that kind of compare to some of the training that you guys did for this special unit? Yeah, Dustin, explain to us what uh, you're a, a Marine Corps special operations. It's a, different than a recon Marine. Uh, so tell everyone who's listening what that actually means and why it's kind of a big deal because it's it was new when you did this. Well, it is. And so when we first started, it wasn't really a, a thing. Um, in fact, I don't even think it officially had a name yet. And so we kind of did our thing for a while. Uh, part of it was urban counterterrorism. And we got to do all kind of really cool, crazy schools. And, you know, you can look up on YouTube, there's videos of MARSOC training and uh, MARSOC's Marine Special Operation Command. Um, you know, really, really cool. Got to do some good things. And so for the, for the, for the layman out there, MARSOC is kind of the Marines version of, I guess you'd say vanilla Navy SEALs, right? Um, yeah, I wouldn't really say vanilla, but sure. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, when I say vanilla, I mean like you're just your standard Navy SEAL team, right? You guys are direct action kind of special operations, right? Correct. We're a tier one unit. We, you know, operate globally. Um, we're amphibiously trained, like pretty much anything that needs to be done, we can do. Um, there is some equipment that we don't use that at the time, and it may have changed now. I've been out for, you know, a number of years, but um, there are some things that, you know, SEALs are trained to do that we are not. But um, 
we cross train with a lot of the SEAL teams, uh, especially those out in, based in Coronado. Uh, they're located right down the road from us. In fact, they come up and use our long range facilities. And so we end up, you know, spending a good bit of time with them, training with them. Really, really top notch, super classy guys, very, very intelligent. Can't speak highly enough about them. Um, I've got several friends that I've made and they're lifelong friends, uh, you know, that are SEALs both. Uh, most of them now are not active, but, uh, you know, really, really top-notch guys. How was the training for that? Was it, I mean, as intense as every movie, TV show, book would ever have us imagine? Was it kind of the same vein as, I guess you could say, SEAL training? I, I feel like I say that because most people who would be listening to this have seen a movie that, you know, if you've seen American Sniper or any of those SEAL movies, they kind of talk, you you get those clips of buds. Was it pretty similar to that kind of style of a training? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's the hard part is not the physical part. You know, if you show up there to go through, you know, our training, SEAL training, Delta, Rangers, you name it, any type of special unit, let's just leave it that because there's Ranger units that are not special, you know, they're Rangers, but they're not technically special operations, this, that, the other, but that's a whole show we could do. But, um, you know, they're all super physically tough guys. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not what you're looking for. What you're looking for is, the mental acuity, the ability to process information under duress, under stress, when your body simply wants to shut down, do you have the willingness and the fortitude to press forward? Do you have the moral compass to make the right decisions in those situations? In fact, I would say, and I'm not basing this off of numbers, just is just my observation. I would say more people are cut for the psychological than the physical. Well, that's what I was going to ask. And, you know, I read a lot about special operations. It's just one of the things that's always been fascinating to me. And it's kind of, you know, when we became friends, one of the first things we talked about but the interesting part and the question I have for you is how much of those team selections is a culture fit? I mean, you know, you want the mentally tough guys. You want the guys that are physically fit. You know, you want the guys that are never going to quit, that will complete the mission at all costs. But when you're building a team, how much is that individual's culture fit for that team factored in? Well, you know, I've never been in charge of building a special operations unit, so I can't necessarily speak to that per se. But, you know, I, I do build a team every day um, in my current profession, and I think it's 100%. You know, it's I can teach you how to do a job, I can teach you the ins and outs, the details the scenarios, we can train any of that all day. The part that I can't train is the work ethic, uh, the moral, ethical side of things. I, 
you know, those are not things that I can instill in you as an adult. They're simply either there or they're not. And so I think it's a hundred percent. So if I had to answer directly, I would say it's of the utmost importance. Now, does that mean that you don't end up with personality clashes from time to time? Absolutely. Most of the individuals that you have, I don't want to say they're type A because they very much understand. They don't necessarily have to lead all the time, but if given the chance, they are all leaders. And they- so in any other, any other circumstance outside of a special operations team, they'd be the leader of that group of people, kind of personalities yes. is what you're saying. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So take the 14 most type A people, you know, and make them work together. And it's not always harmonious. It's not always easy, but they always get the job done and find a way to do it. So that's kind of, you know, it's, it's difficult. I would never want to be tasked with that. And in, in on that same vein, Tell us about, so you were, you went into the Marines as an officer, but yet we, when you were on the special operations, when you got into that unit, you were chief and I, I believe retired as a chief. That's interesting. Um, I, for the people who don't understand the military ranks that well, tell us why that's kind of interesting, why it doesn't happen. And, and your story about it, I think is really interesting. So, like I said, my dad retired Navy. <laughs> He was uh, AO first class, uh, aviation ordinance first class. Uh, he was a, I believe, a chief petty officer, Bell. And during the assessment and selection phase of my career in MARSOC, we get down to the last cut, let's say, right? So it's much like, it was done exactly like any high school sport you've ever played. You know, they make the cut, they post it on the wall, they walk away. It is what it is. Right. So everybody clamors up there. You find your name. If your name's on the list, you're good. If it's not, you didn't make it. So, you know, at this time I was, uh, a, I was a Lieutenant had my butter bars. Yay. And um, I make the cut. My name was on the list. I was super excited, a little nervous because I didn't exactly know what the hell I'd just gotten into, but it was good. You know, I'd work my butt off and uh, made it. So I'm going to walk off and head back to my room and I get stopped and CO asked to see me in the office. So I go and he goes, have you ever thought about being a warrant officer? And I'm like, nope, never, not even once. And tell us, I mean, explain to us what that is. So warrant officer in layman's terms, it's, it's this weird ground between enlisted and commissioned officers. So enlisted off enlisted 
are terrified of a warrant officer because they're way outrank them. A most commissioned officers want nothing to do with a warrant officer because they've generally been in much, much longer than a commissioned officer has in most cases, and they don't really know what they do. So it's it's kind of somewhere in the middle, and nobody really fucks with them. So, yeah, I ne- because I was a commissioned officer, it never crossed my mind, and, you know, I went from there. So he explains to me that the washout rate was not quite what they had anticipated, this, that, the other, blah, 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 blah. Would I like to become a warrant officer? And I have no idea, no answer. So this is the part where I, I'm like, can I have a lifeline? Can I call my dad? <laughs> well, because I, I don't know what to do, right? You know, right. I'm, what, 20, I think I was 22, 23 years old at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to go to law school. And now all of a sudden I'm part of a special operations unit. And now I'm, they're asking me to go from a commission officer to a warrant officer. I don't even know if that's a thing. Like, I don't even know if you can do that. That's, I, I would have to say that's rarely a thing, right? I, I, that's what I thought. So he laughs at me and he's like, yes, son, you can call your dad. So I go outside, call my dad, call my dad at work. And the number of times I've called my dad at work ever I can count on one hand, guarantee it, and probably have three to four fingers left over. Um, like you just, you know, you don't call your dad while he's working. It's, you don't do that. So call my dad. He's all panicked because I'm calling him at work. And I explained the situation to him. And I was like, Dad, I, I don't really know what I should do here. Like, what should I do? And he goes, son, I don't really know what you're doing in the Marine Corps as is. Because, of you know, I, t- I can tell him a little bit, can't tell him some of it, blah, 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 all that. And I said, well, Dad, would you become a warrant officer? And he goes, I always wanted to be a warrant officer. Right. And I said, OK, well, what should I worry about? He goes, your pay. And that's I think that's a fair answer to any job, any time, anything that goes on, you know. I was about to say, I feel like everyone worries about that regardless. Yeah. Good advice. So I was like, okay. So I go back and talking to him and I'm like, what about my pay? And he's like, well, you know, for those that have been in the military, everything's done on like this sliding scale, your rank versus the amount of time you've been in. That's, what you get paid, right? Yeah, it's like a spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheet of- uh, Yeah, it's like an X, Y axis. X, X and Y axis, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it. Like you're, you're square, that's what you get paid. And everybody else that does that job with the same rank and time, that's what they get paid. <laughs> so my situation, there wasn't a box for it, right? Because- There's no, you know, 
two years in at this point or close to it, warrant officer. (laughs) Like it just does not happen. So um, they assure me that it'll get taken care of. And it did without fail. They worked it out, made it happen. And so the next week I started TBS, the basic school. Um, very interesting, very good, um, you know, uh, very good school, learned tons of tons and tons of stuff and went from there. Come back to my unit and a couple weeks later, off we go. So that was kind of it. So at this point, I've been in, call it two years, and I'm now warrant officer. Yay. And uh, now the fun begins. We start, you know, going back and forth overseas. Uh, We weren't doing deployments at this point. We were just doing ops and going over, coming back, sometimes a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, that sort of thing. But it was pretty consistent. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up over there. I think one of the interesting things you told me about your time uh, deployed, which uh, you were in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, correct? Or yes. just one of the two? No. Both. You were in both. Uh, there's, and, and like I said before, like I'm, I'm a fan of, of the special operations books and I, I love reading that stuff. I think it's fascinating. Uh, there's been multiple books written about uh, the unit uh, that Chief Bell was in and he has never read them. And I'm not going to go into which books those are. Um, I mean, if you if you know about that kind of community, I'm sure you could probably figure it out. But I thought that was interesting when you told me uh, that you never read any of those books that were written about um, some of the some of the operations that you were doing over there. No, uh, you know it's I've, it's kind of been there, done that, got the T-shirt kind of thing. Uh, I mean, both of you guys played football at a very high level. I doubt you've ever read every football book ever made. So, you know, it's kind of the same thing. Um, You know, I drive a car every day. I don't read books about how to drive cars. I That makes sense. That makes sense. Steaks, I eat meals. I don't read books on that either. Well, fair enough. I read books about eating food all the time. Well, okay. Personally. So here's the thing, man. I'm not opposed to reading them. Um, You know, I've, like I said before, I've got several friends that uh, are SEALs, were SEALs. And, you know, some of them have books. I read their books. People that a lot of people would know. Yeah. Yeah. Only because that was their story, not mine. You know, um, I read, uh, where's that book? I read a book that a buddy of mine, a seal wrote not too long ago. I thought it was kind of cheesy, so I'm not going to say the name of it, but he did really well with it. So congratulations to him. Um, was it a decent book? Yeah, it was okay. Um, but not my favorite book ever. So a a lot of those books kind of follow the same kind of, uh, 
template, I guess you can say. Yeah. Um, well, here's the one I'm I feel like they vary in quality as far as detail or the actual. Some are better than others, I guess is the best way to say it, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I've had people tell me I should write a book, and I'm like, that's not what I do. You know, part of the reason that I don't do a lot of this type of stuff that we're doing here is I love my anonymity. You know, I love being able to go to the grocery store or my kid's school and it's not like, hey, 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 look at that guy. You know what I mean? Like, that's not that's not my life. I live a very, very quiet life and I like that. And so that for me has always been a, a driving factor of what and why I've decided to stay away from those types of things. Um, but, you know, I do read a lot. I actually generally finish about two books a week, uh, various topics. Uh, lately, for whatever reason, for about the last six, eight months, I've been spending a lot of time reading fiction and, you know, late, I just picked up a, a, a sales book not too long ago while I was on one of my trips out to LA and it's sitting in the stack of books to read and I'll get to it eventually. And then there's a couple of political books and history that I would really, you know, like to get to in a amount of time, but for whatever reason, lately it's just been fiction. So now that you're, you're, you've, you've been done with the Marines for years now mm -hmm. and you're doing a lot of different things. Uh, I know for sure you're working with a lot of homeless veterans in the Dallas Fort Worth area. I want to talk about that, but you're also now leading other teams, teams of salespeople. You've been in the auto business for years. Mm -hmm. Um, had a successful career in the auto business, which is a business that I, I don't feel like a lot of average people, your your regular consumer understand uh, really <laughs> the depths or complexities of that business and how it's completely designed to make money. Um, what are your, some of your experiences in, in since you transitioned into business uh, from the military? Um, and, and you know what have been those kind of challenges? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a very, very open-ended question. And yep. it, it just kind of depends on what part of the auto industry you want to talk about. Do you want to talk about my experiences as a finance manager, as like the no. worst car salesman ever? Um, <laughs> you know, do you want to talk about uh, being a finance director, moving on to being a finance rep, being going into floor planning, doing consulting. I mean, I've done so many different things in this industry in the you know past 20 years or so. Um, that well, let's do this. Since you just, you mentioned a bunch of things that most people have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, I unfortunately know very well what you're talking about because we all work together in this business over the years. Um, let's, let's look at it this way. If, if you're, you're on this podcast and you're talking to a bunch of people who are listening to you that may or may not know about the business. How about this? Now that we trust you, uh, thank you for your service. Yay. 
what kind of things I want to go buy a car. What do I need to know so I don't get fucked? Okay. Super, super simple. First thing you need to know is what do you want? Okay. Because what car do you want? And what do you need? And I so people call you and they're like, hey, Dustin, help me get a car. Your first thing to say is, well, what car do you want? Yes. If you were to call me and say, hey, I want a car. Okay. Well, what kind of car do you want? Because that's where I need to start at. Right. And then I look at, okay, who's a dealership that I can trust from my perspective? And I know the majority of dealers in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm not going to say all of them, but I've had interactions with, I would probably say 85, 90% of them over the you know last 10 years that I've been here. Um, and there's a lot of really, really good dealerships. And unfortunately, there's a handful of unscrupulous ones that, you know, that give car dealerships a bad name. But the majority of dealerships are good people. They're small businesses. They're family owned. And, you know, in all honesty, man, they're just trying to make a buck. They're going to give you a fair deal. They're not going to give you the deal of the century all the time. But it's a fair deal. If you're happy with it, they're happy with it. Then you got a fair deal. That kind of seems to be the, uh, the 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 guiding principle, at least, is if you're buying a car, at least make sure that there's a deal where you're happy about it, right? Yeah. As long as you're happy, you don't have to ask all the questions about what actually the best deal you could have gotten is not necessarily the deal that makes you happy, right? Well, here's the thing. As a consumer, do we all want a good deal? Yes. If I go buy a TV at Best Buy... I would like to think I got a fair deal on that TV. Now, the part that I think a lot of people forget, and one of the things that really frustrates me, um, not only as a consumer of automobiles, but also someone that works intimately with dealerships, looks at their cash flow, their profitability, their tax liabilities, you know, all aspects of dealership operations. Um, <clears throat> dealerships have to make money. Simple as that. And so as a consumer, if you have a car that's worth $20,000 and the dealer is asking $20,000 for it, and if you can buy it for $19,500, I think that's a pretty fair deal, you know? I think if you can buy it for 20 grand and you're happy with it, then that's good. Because remember, that dealership employs X number of people. Those people have families to feed. They have careers. They have mortgages just like we do. You know, so it's, yes, you can go out and you can scour the ends of the earth and you can find that rare car that you got for an amazing price. And it's okay. But remember, those dealerships, especially those good dealerships that do good business and treat you with respect and dignity and provide you a nice car at a fair price, we want those guys to stay in business. So, you know, it, it's my take that getting the ultimate bottom dollar on a car 
I don't always think that's the best way to do it. If you can, that's great. But I, I try to be pragmatic and realistic on it and look at it from both sides. And if you want those dealerships to stay in business, let them make a couple of hundred bucks. I promise you, when they went to the auction and they bought that car, they didn't just show up and raise their hand and it take 20 minutes. It took, you know, a day, two days to do everything the right way. They then brought it in. They sent it off to get touched up, you know, what we call in the industry frontline ready. They had the brakes done. They had the oil changed, inspection done, wipers. They had it, you know, steam clean. They had the interior detailed. They had everything that was wrong with the car. The paint touched up this, that, the other, new windshield put in, all of this stuff for you to come up there and beat them up on price. Come on. Like, let's be well, there. They, they got them. I think that's kind of the lesson, right? Is, is there's a lot that goes into it, but, and most people don't ever understand how that business works or all the things that go on behind the scenes. But I, I think the moral of the story is, is based on what you're saying, find the deal that works for you. That's it. There's going to be a deal that makes you happy. And if you're happy, it's fine. That doesn't mean you have to dig in and find out if you got the best deal. Because yeah. what does that even mean, right? Like it's kind of it's kind of, if you want a car and you're happy paying a certain price, there's a dealership that will get you that car at a certain price that makes you happy. You know, bottom line. Here's the thing: digging into all the the uh, details about it doesn't doesn't make any sense. Here's the way I here's you know something I always equate it to. You may not have married the girl that your mom wanted you to, but you married the girl that made you happy. Same thing. Aww. That was now nice. We're getting deep now. That was really nice. <laughs> so, so we kind of talk. <laughs> obviously, we're talking about the consumer side, yeah, of the auto business. But what are some of the things, maybe from your background, whether that be athletics or military um, experience, that um, you've used to kind of be successful in the role you're in now? The the role of managing different salespeople, different area people in different states. Obviously, you're you're in Texas, but uh, what are some of the skill sets and things that you've used to be successful in the role that you're in now, which is, you know, obviously servicing a different side of the business? Well, it's a really good question, Bronson. And the answer is I have no idea what I'm doing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, it's pretty simple, man. It's no matter what you do, if you have a passion for it, I think it's much easier to be successful at it. And I am exceptionally blessed, fortunate, lucky as hell. I mean, however you want to term it, phrase it, spin it, that I, through my years of being in this industry, have worked with people that have mentored me and have been really, really good to me. In fact, I will say the worst boss that I ever had, I talk to on a very regular basis, even though I've not worked for him in years and years. And we have a great relationship. They taught me a ton. Um, you know, the team that I have now, <clears throat> I'm very, very lucky to have. 
Uh, and I think part of that comes from the way that I recruit. What I look for is people that I know that have that work ethic that are willing to get out there and grind and push day in and day out. And they may not necessarily know everything about the industry we're in, but that can be taught. So I think it's about, you know, and I would assume when putting together a football team, you know, you may see that rare athlete that is not in the right position for him. You know, he does okay at that position. He does well at it, but it's not where he needs to be. But he's got the work ethic, the discipline, and the ability to be what you need him to be. And so, you know, he may be this position and you go recruit him for this position. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it don't. But he's got the athleticism. He's got the drive. He's got the work ethic. He's got that mental fortitude, that grit, that moxie, for lack of a better term, that it takes to do that. And so that's how I recruit. I look, I don't always look within our industry. Um, In fact, the number of people on my team that have experience doing what we do, I think I've got three of them. Out of, I don't know, what, 17, something like that on my team personally. Um, So I don't think it's necessarily about what you know. I think it's about looking at who you are as an individual and understanding that and understanding what motivates a person and then trying to provide that environment for them. I think that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, knowing, <laughs> you know, your success in that business and, and this is, it's, it's a tough business and it's cutthroat and it's fast paced. And um, I think there is a, a need to understand why building kinds of teams like that is essential. I think building, building teams is a fascination of mine, period. Um, why certain things work and certain things don't. And I think that's a pretty good take on on why your team works and and, and your kind of philosophy behind it. Well, the other so, side to it is simply I'm very, very fortunate. <clears throat> I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have one of the best managers that I've ever worked for. Um, and she gives me tons and tons of support. She gives me tons of leeway to do what I need to do, do what I feel I should do. Um, Sometimes it's a really good thing. Sometimes I feel like she gives me enough rope to hang myself. But either way, you know, I learn from it and I move on. So I think part of it is just like in sports, if you have, you can have you know, some of the greatest players to ever play the game and go nowhere because of coaching. And I know I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack from this, but I think 
Texas is a prime example of that. They spend, you know, they've got one of the biggest budgets in sports period and their boosters and money. And, you know, they do an amazing job of recruiting, but year in, year out, they kind of suck. And I think it's because of coaching. I, I would agree with you. And it's kind of sad we, because they do have some really, I mean, really, really good athletes that end up going there and kind of go nowhere because of, you know, the coaching. Yeah, I think so you're saying that Texas isn't back yet is what you're saying? I don't think Texas has been back for a long time, but that's a different topic. I think uh, I think that'll resonate with a lot of the people that listen to this podcast being Oklahoma and Oklahoma State fans. Um, agreeing with you that uh, Texas is more hype than substance, maybe. Well, I mean, you know, I live here in the Fort Worth area, and several years ago they had a kid come through, uh, what's his name, Jonathan Gray. And I don't watch high school football, but I kept hearing about this kid and kept hearing about this kid, and he was playing 20 minutes away. And I went out and watched him. He was running back. And he personally put up, I think it was 63 points that night. And, I mean, the kid looked like Barry Sanders running over like a Pop Warner team out there. I mean, it was it was amazing to watch. And he went to Texas and, you know, it, it just like I expected that guy – to go as far as you can go and be an amazing athlete and not saying he's not, but I don't think his time at Texas was as well served if he would have went to, and I'm not an Alabama fan, but I do think Nick Saban's probably one of the greatest football coaches to ever live. And it really irritates me because I'm, you know, Georgia fan, obviously, but I think the guy gets it done. I think his players love him. And he puts numbers on the board and turns out pro players probably faster and more frequent than any college ever. But I think if he would have went to a school like that, you know, it may have been different. I don't know. But I think it's the difference in coaching. And I think that is very relevant in the business world. And what I mean by that is I read a meme not too long ago. It says that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. And so I think part of my success, Evan, is I've had really, really good luck with managers and they've showed me the way and taught me things and slapped my hand when it needed to be slapped, and it's quite often, but that's the secret to it is good management. I've had a mixed bag, personally. I'd love if uh, people uh, sent in their manager experiences uh, every time I hear anyone talk about their manager experiences, but that's so true, though. I used to not believe that. Uh, you said it's a meme. I feel like it's been a saying for forever. I feel like uh, I had a professor in, in college that told me that, that people quit managers, not their jobs. And I, I did not believe it until I quit my first job. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that, and, that, and that was part of the reason. Um, and, and this is the toughest part about this podcast because I feel like we could sit here and talk to you for three hours. 
Uh, and, and we definitely want to have you back on because you, there's so many cool stories and information uh, to, to get from you. But since we're kind of getting a little long on time, uh, I want to do the one part of the podcast. It's personally my favorite is, is when we ask you some of the questions that people have sent in. Right. Uh, not knowing who was even gonna, who we were even gonna ask it to. Um, we call this our little shotgun questions page. Sure. We like to do it with everyone we've ever had. So Bronson started off, hit him with uh, some of <laughs> our few email questions that people have sent in, not even knowing who was going to be answering them. Uh, go ahead, Bronson. Yeah, one of them we sort of maybe touched on, might have an idea on, but the first one is what is currently in your Amazon cart. And I feel like we might've touched on this a little bit before we started with some of your recurring subscription purchases, but what's uh, what's currently in your cart in your Amazon account? All right, hold on. I will uh, pull it up and take a look. Oh, we're getting a, a verified account of what is actually in his Amazon. Yes. Cart. I'm actually looking at it right now. <clears throat> I actually have two items in my uh, cart right now. So one of them is a a seven piece wooden cooking utensil set. I need a new one. Um, I take a lot of pride in cooking, and it's one of my outlets that I I love to try new recipes. I love to have people over and cook with them and socialize. And it, it's a very intimate thing to sit down with a very small group of people and create a dish and share that with them. And so, you know, I'm trying to up my game on that. So I've got that. And then those of that know me on a very personal level, I spend a lot of time woodworking, not great at it, but I hope to be one day. Um, my grandfather was a carpenter growing up and I spent a lot of time working with him from a very, very young age. And you know, I could build a house, anything you need like that. But as I got older and I'm getting older, I'm not really interested in carpentry, so to speak. I'm trying my hand and trying to learn at fine woodworking. And it's a very different skill set. It takes a lot more patience, a lot more time. And so I'm ordering some new T-Track to build a uh, assembly table with clamps and some other things on it. And so those are the two things that are in my inbox or in my car right now. His are a lot cooler than mine. I feel like his are like doing cool stuff. My, I, I have a, a pen made out of concrete in my Amazon cart and then a, uh, fogless mirror for the bathroom. Dude, I actually bought a fogless mirror for the shower a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I had one and mine broke. So I had another one sitting in my cart for maybe two to three months now. And it, um, man, it's a game changer. You know, it is a game changer, but I feel like, I feel bad. Like you've got woodworking stuff and I'm doing all this cool shit. And I'm like, I've got a, need to do a mirror and a concrete pen. What about you, Bronson? What do you got? So I'm the one person that I know that's actually never purchased anything off Amazon ever in my life. You've never bought anything off Amazon in your life? Never. I don't have a Prime account. I've never bought anything off Amazon knowingly. And I guess I've made it this far. But uh, right. yeah, I know that's a boring answer. That explains so, so much. It will change your life. That that's explains what, so that's much. That's why I'm afraid I know that once I, once I get it and you know stuff starts showing up in five hours when I order it, I know it's going to – you know it could be a problem. You know, start oh, worrying about that. Definitely. 
All right, ready for this. Next question. I thought this was a good one. I think this one's pretty cool. All right. All right. What would the title of your autobiography be? Under the assumption that you would write a book. He's right. Yeah, maybe if you write a book. So there's a quote. This is, this is a tough one. Yeah. It is. And I don't know how I would exactly word it. But as I've grown older and I've had some failed marriages and, you know, bad relationships and things like that, um, I've really found that the happiness in your life comes from you, not the shit you own, your friends, but not you don't your friends don't provide you with your happiness. They share your happiness with you. And so the quote goes, and I, and I may misspeak it, sorry. Happy is the man who finds refuge in himself. That's the title of your autobiography. Yes, might as well be. I like it. Bronson and I were thinking something more along the lines of uh, one too many whiskeys. One too many whiskeys? Yeah. I like that too. Uh, as long, see, I'm an Irish whiskey guy though. So it's it's got to be the Irish whiskey. Yeah, that sounds uh, kind of like a, like a we have another work another working title. Possibly, um, what do you would you consider the Fighting Irishman of South Georgia? I'm good with that. Yeah. Okay, we have two titles. We're cool. Yeah. We might be onto something here. Yeah, should write a book. That's a tough question. I feel like mine would be. Uh, huh? He tried. All right. No, <laughs> no, bro. You still got tons to do now. No, mine would be called. I love you, mom. Who's probably the only person listening to this. Um, last question. Yeah. And this one, I, I kind of feel <laughs> this question was sent in without any um, background whatsoever. Okay. And I feel it on a different level considering the situation we're in. All it said was. Got any new shows to watch? Period. Well, obviously, if you hadn't seen Tiger King, you got to watch that. Moral of the story, don't do meth. Real simple. That, we, we, <laughs> we talked about Tiger King on our last episode a little bit. And honestly, that's, that's probably one of the best uh, straightforward lessons that we've heard from it is, yes, don't do meth. And, but it's, if you're going to do meth... Do a lot of it. No, if you're going to do meth, fucking own some tigers at least. Yeah. I don't, right? See, I, I mean, if you're going to be a meth guy, you want to be a meth guy with tigers. If I'm going to do meth and I'm going to do meth in Oklahoma, I might as well own tigers. Some people would say that meth is only done in Oklahoma, but. Well, you ever been to Louisiana and Mississippi? Yeah, I have. too, bro. Yeah, I think Missouri, Missouri is the meth capital of the U.S., I believe. It is. It is. That's actually statistically true, 100%. That's absolutely sad. Like, dude, I've never wanted to do a drug that they were like, hey, it's going to rot your teeth out. It's that good. I'm like, yeah, sign me up. No, bro. No interest at all. Yeah, I think one of the things I took away from that, too, was like, don't be fake gay because i feel like that put people in a lot of really bad situations in that well, wait a minute wait a minute like I, I think 
adulting it was kind of the issue there and obviously the guy is a super narcissist but outside of that being an adult it, there's three things super super simple pay your bills wear deodorant and don't do meth <laughs> and i you know like, and that's the title of our podcast thank you <laughs> like man if you if you can do those three things, you may not become president of the United States. You may not end up being a billionaire, but you're going to do okay in life. And I don't think they did well at any of those. So I, I would agree. But once again, if you haven't watched it, you got to watch it. For sure. Uh, other than that, though, the Harry Bosch series on um, Prime. Amazon, yeah. If, I'm not uh, if you get a chance, actually read the books. The books are so much better than the series. Series really good. Books are much better. The problem is I think there's 21 or 22 of them. So it's an endeavor to read those. I mean, most people probably don't read that many books in a lifetime, which is very, very sad. But, you know. Um, read read books uh, here. We're we're big book guys at Probia Takes Podcast. That, that show is you've actually told me about that show, and I will confirm that it's it's pretty good. So, uh, for the person who asked, got any new shows to watch? Period. Uh, Harry Bosch or Tiger King? Uh, and if you're gonna watch Tiger King, you gotta give us your Tiger King takes, obviously. But once again. Chief Bell, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We could probably talk to you for another two hours. We'd love to have you on again. There's so many interesting stories that you have about a lot of different things. And I feel like this was just barely scratching the surface. We didn't talk about the good stories, man. Well, I mean, we're going to get into the good stories. We would love to have you back on for sure. But real quick, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing with homeless veterans. Um, You know, the homeless veteran population is is a real issue it's something that's near and dear to my heart you know these young men and women are very very well trained the majority of them have exceptional work ethics they've managed multi multi-million billion dollars worth of equipment on a day-to-day basis they work exceptionally well under pressure you know if you can find it in your heart to work with your local homeless veteran shelter and give some of these young men and women a chance. Yes. Some of them will disappoint you. It's the nature of the beast, but there's a lot of them that just really, really need a hand up, not a handout. And they won't disappoint you. They're good people. They've ended up in a bad spot and they're ready and willing. Most of them to do what needs to do to get back on the right track. And so if you can find it in your heart and work with them, please do. And you won't be. Uh, Is there a place where people that are listening can go? Is is there a website or something that you would have them go to uh, if they want to help out? Um, Well, I normally deal with the homeless veteran shelter here in Fort Worth. It's called Patriot house. Um, Really good people over there. Uh, The organization that, I normally ask people to donate to if they have time and they're willing to open their hearts is 
Mission 22. It's a veteran suicide organization that really, really puts dollar for dollar. They have a very, very low operating cost. Um, you know, they make sure that the funds that they're receiving get to the veterans themselves and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, if you're not willing and able to do that, <clears throat> if you go to the gym, offer to take one of the vets with you. These guys and girls love to work out. It'll get them talking. Um, it does great things for the mind, lifting and having somebody to spend that time with. Um, you know, there's a million ways to do it, but however you're willing to do it, just please do what you can. And uh, that's that's all I got to say, man. No, I think that's that's fantastic. And I think that anybody that can help those guys out, you know, we, we definitely owe it to them um, as citizens here in America. And, and on that same note, I know I can speak for Evan and myself when I say, you know, sincerely, thank you for your service. And uh, I know most, most, if not all of our listeners would 100% agree with that. And uh, we appreciate you and, and uh, you serve in the country. And uh, also on a lighter note, appreciate you uh, spending some time with us on the podcast today. Yeah, I got to drink whiskey. What's better? Might as well. Absolutely. Well, once again, thanks for coming on down. Uh, every other Monday, we are posting our podcast. You can get it SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Follow us at Appropriate Pod on Twitter. Uh, sh- please send us an email. We want your emails. It's appropriate takes at gmail.com. Super easy. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know your questions for our next guest. Chief Bell, thank you so much uh, once again for coming on. And uh, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Y'all have a good night.